Welcome back to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser, and I am one of the Jews on Film brothers. And I am delighted to be joined by my co-host and brother. Well, not literally, but Daniel Zana. Why don't you take it away? Wow, we're at brother stage. I love it. Thank you, Harry. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker and editor and also one of the Jews on Film brothers. Our guest today is a multi-venue director of stage, television, and film, and currently pioneers the new form of live event called Applause. Benjamin Stewart Thompson, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you for joining us. Why, thank you so much. It's a privilege. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to kick it around with you guys, and you're doing an amazing job. Oh, thank you so much. We uh, a lot. we really appreciate that. Uh, today, we're, d- we're going to be discussing the Marx Brothers classic film, Duck Soup from 1933. You're uh, kidding. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Isn't that crazy? Well, you have a special connection to the film. You know, it was it was directed by Leo McCary, uh, written by Burke Kalmar and Harry Ruby. Additional dialogue by Arthur Sheikman and Nat Perrin. Now, Benjamin, you were telling us before we recorded that you have a special connection to Arthur Sheikman. Would you like to share that with the audience? He was my maternal grandfather of blessed memory. And Groucho called him the Sheik, the fastest wit in the West. Mm-hmm. And I remember him as being a very dignified, retiring wit And really the theme, as I see it, of the intersection really between my grandfather, Arthur Sheikman, and the Marx Brothers and Jews on film is that in our tradition, we are called upon to not humiliate others. Heck, we don't even want to humiliate the bread in front of the wine. So we cover it. So it, it's, uh, you know, doesn't say, why are you blessing the wine first? And I think one of the reasons that the Marx Brothers cottoned to my grandfather, and I can tell you how that happened, was because his wit was without malice. Mm -hmm. He didn't demean in his wit. It was something that ultimately uplifted and was quizzical, and, and I think that was part of it. And another reason, of course, is because uh, so much of my grandfather's writing was done behind Groucho with love, with an agreement. I'll just give you an example. After my grandmother passed, we found some letters and Groucho wrote my grandfather this loving note. It said, you know, you wrote the book, you get half of the money, but you can't tell anybody that you wrote my autobiography. I think it's well known that that Groucho's first book, Beds, was written by my grandfather. So to have a film where it says right on the film, additional dialogue by Arthur Sheikman. To me, that's a connection. And the funny thing is, if you look at uh, Shyster, Flywheel Shyster. I don't know if you could see it on the Zoom here, but I, I took a cr- I took a picture of the credit you're mentioning. We'll, we'll definitely put it on the, uh, on the show notes and stuff like that. Uncle Nat was a particularly affable fellow. And, uh, you know, all of these icons you know, the writers of Casablanca, the Epstein brothers, and uh, so many others were in my grandmother's circle. And as I grew up, I was among them. And Nat Perrin, my grandfather, one of my grandfather's writing partners, but uh, uh, certainly one of the most cherished, he just said, I said, Nat, I'm working on a project and I really need to figure out how to get it done. He goes, Benji, <laughs> get your script in your hand and pound pavement. <laughs> You know, they were just, they were icons. 
And uh, so I really think that that is the connection, is that uh, the Marx Brothers uh, appreciated my father's wit, because if you look at their work, they do not demean. They only cut the tails off of a, a character who's demeaning. They only, yeah. they only put the rat trap on his fingers. But when there is somebody who's not demeaning, they uplift them. They, they take right. them with them. So it clearly sounds like we can understand, you know, one of the questions we always ask is what made you choose this film? And, and I think that's pretty clear. You know, you have very personal connections to it. But one of the other things that we also like to learn from our guests is what is and, you know, growing up and what has sort of evolved in your relationship with Jewish film? What what does Jewish film mean to you? And, you know, I guess, you know, in this case, where do the Marx brother, Brothers fit into that? I could have chosen Horse Feathers because my grandfather actually appears in Horse Feathers. I don't know wow. if you recall, there's a football game. Groucho suddenly appears in the announcer's booth. And, you know, uh, it's the same kind of plot where they're trying to get the other team, not the other countries, but the other team's signals and and they're sending in spies and what have you. So there's a football game going on. And in the announcer's booth next to Groucho is my grandfather at a typewriter. It's very funny. So that might have been tenuous. But I think in order to answer your question, Mr. Offensoso, I would have to ask you the question, what do you mean by Jewish film? What do you mean by Jews on film? And I'll answer the question for you. Either you're speaking about Jews making a film, and then we have to go into the question of who is a Jew. I look at your concern of Jews on film, and I think that what you may be doing is highlighting what it is to have a Jewish perspective on film, whether it's the auteur or whether it's the actor. Right. You know, how is James Caan being a Jew in, you know, the mobster films that he's in? You know, how how is uh, a current superhero woman not being a Jew or being a Jew or whatever it is? And then you get to the, all the other questions. Right. But I think the most beautiful thing about it is when you ask, how does it resonate for me? Mm -hmm. Because we have to understand our relationship with what it is to be a Jew. And one of the challenges is the language itself. If somebody says, hey, what kind of Jew are you? If you say, oh, well, I'm a Jew, people will say, you're a what? In other words, that word itself cannot be understood. It can't be understood. What does it mean to be Orthodox? What does it mean to be right. modern Orthodox? What does it mean to be conservative? It itself requires an entire investigation because we don't have a common language. Mm -hmm. The way I look at Jews in film is, are they being misrepresented? Are they being lionized? Are the positive traits that our traditions have tried to bring to the world being highlit or hijacked? That I think is the question. What is the Jewish dick, if you will, uh, element in this particular piece of media? So if that's the question you're asking and I'm trying to answer with you, I picked this because not only is it part of my heritage as my grandfather's work, and he wrote some of these scripts, some of the text from uh, Shyster Flywheel Shyster, which they worked on in the year from 1932, the Marx Brothers were broadcasting on NBC 
And then they moved to the West Coast. There was no NBC studios on the West Coast. But anyway, some of the skits, uh, for example, the whole skit, Ciccolini and, and Pinky are withering their boss at his desk about how they tried to track uh, oh, Rufus yeah. T. Firefly, right. that whole scene of recounting their gumshoe work mm-hmm. is right out of Shyster Flyer with oh, Mill okay. Shyster. Great. This film is germane to this week's Torah reading, which is Noah. Okay. And that is that we need to have humility. And humility doesn't mean humiliation, which sometimes people think it means. It means to understand that you're always at the beginning, that you are not a master and therefore you don't need any more help. Why was Moses so humble? And some say he was the reincarnation of Noah because he always said, I'm not done learning. I'm not, I'm not good enough, but it's not humiliation. And my grandfather was very unassuming and very retiring. And so I felt like this resonated with this week. And I feel like it resonates with this question because the Jew is intended to be a light to the world. What does that mean? It means to be an exemplar. And what does it mean to be an exemplar? Not to demean others, to find a way to uplift others. Hillel was a great rabbi of uh, 2,500 years ago or so. And someone asked him once, what does it mean to be a Jew? What is the whole of our tradition? Standing on one leg, tell me what it is. And he said, you know, that's not really a fair question, but if you have to answer it, the answer is that which is hateful to yourself, don't do to others, or more popularly heard, do to others as you would do to yourself, or better understood, love your neighbor or love the stranger as yourself because you were once strangers. That means that you have to love yourself and it means that you have to love the stranger. But you can't love the stranger and demean them. So the point is my grandfather's humor is not demeaning. And I think that's an important thing for us to have for Jews on film today. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, you know, we're very excited. Thank you. Thank you for weighing in. It's gotten me like very excited to like jump into it before that, though, Harry, I do think it is time for, for you to, to read that IMDb summary to clue the listener in to what the 1933 film Duck Soup is all about. Sure, that sounds perfect. And before I do, I just want to say, you know, I, I loved what you just shared, Ben. And I, I do think that it's a, it's a great lens just to see the sort of positive representation of Jews, you know, how that manifests in film. And, and like you said, the comedy with that, with that open-mindedness or that uplifting sensibility, I, I do... I, I'm excited to engage with that as we go through some of the plot, because there are some of these gags that I think read a couple different ways. And I'm excited to see kind of where they're coming from and, you know, who yeah. the, the purported victims are in, in those right. scenarios. But that's going to be uh, an exciting discussion once we get into the film. But before we do, like you mentioned, Daniel, I'm going to go with the IMDb summary. And uh, I, I have a special one for us this Ooh. week, actually. IMDb okay. had a couple of different ones, as they often do, but uh-huh. I recognized Sometimes they tell you who actually wrote it, you know, the account name of it. Yeah. And I recognized one of them as uh, Carl Needham and his, uh, they have his attached email, call at imdb.com because he is actually the founder of IMDb. And what? it's kind of exciting. And I, I know he's watched, I, I've seen stuff about him. I think he has, this guy, Carl has watched, you know, 
thousands, millions of movies. I don't know what the number is. Let's call it, you know, tens of thousands of movies before. And he's clearly engaged with a lot, but right. I don't often see his name writing the summary. And, you know, this might've been a movie that was very personal to him. So, you know, Kyle, if you're listening and ever want to be a guest on our podcast, we would love to have you, but I'm going to start just by uh, queuing him up with, with the summary that he wrote. Sure thing. So, uh, so here it goes. So it just reads, the small state of Fredonia is in a financial mess, borrowing a huge sum of cash from wealthy widow, Mrs. Teasdale. She insists on replacing the current president with crazy Rufus T. Firefly and mayhem erupts. To make matters worse, the neighboring state sends inept spies Ciccolini and Pinky to obtain top secret information, creating even more chaos. Nice. Usually we go to break right after IMDb summary, but we did something and we're trying something new in the third season. So like, I want to add like a little bit of a... Uh, you know, context and production gossip or or just like sort of. So I have this book on my shelf, right? Um, it's a Marx Brothers book I got from my grandparents. And um, so my great grandfather like gambled with the Marx Brothers and he got, I don't know if you can see it here on the recording, but uh, so I was reading this and, you know, this film Duck Soup was sort of, they were, have they had a uh, a five picture deal with Paramount and, this was sort of the end of their of their run with Paramount. And so at this point, Chico, who was a gambler, would gamble with Irving Thalberg, who was from MGM. And so they met at like a poker game. They never really discussed business, but Chico sees, seeing an opportunity and sensing that their time was out at Paramount. There was like a change in, in the ranks at Paramount and they were trying to renew their contract. It wasn't happening yet. And so Chico met up with Irving Thalberg and the rest of the Marx Brothers at this lunch, and they were able to arrange like a nice deal with with MGM. And they got initially they got fifteen percent gross of all their box office for those pictures they did with MGM, and they then raised it up to twenty percent, which for that time was like very impressive. So I wanted to add that in. Thalberg also was the one who told them that they needed to have more of a plot to hang their comedy on. Right. He was he was a very good thing for them. Yeah, I mean, he was um, I think he died only only a few years after they started, like after they moved over to MGM, they think it did one or two movies and then he passed. Yeah, away. I think he, he was dead within three years for the time. He was someone who championed like a lot of films. He worked under Louis B. Mayer, but he was really the head of production and, and really like championed a lot of of cool films like this. So with all that context in mind, let's take a quick break, take a breath. And let's fill our bellies up with some duck soup right after we take a quick break. So we'll be right back. We are back here discussing duck soup by the Marx Brothers on Jews on Film. And we're going to start by going through a little bit of the plot summary. You know, Benjamin, we were talking during the break and you pointed out, I think, very accurately that a lot of Marx Brothers films and specifically this one kind of use plot more as a frame. But really, you know, the sort of connective tissue, I think, where your words are, you know, come through in sort of the context and the gags and everything in between. So we're going to do a little bit of a loose summary of each part of the plot, but I anticipate we're going to fill it in with a lot of the stuff that Hopefully we'll do our best to imitate, but I, you know, I do this for all of our movies, but I definitely encourage you watching this movie. It's a, it's a brisk 70 minutes and definitely worth your time. Yeah. We yeah. open the movie in the fictional country of Fredonia, where we meet a rich widow named Mrs. Teasdale and she's being convinced and she ultimately agrees to give $20 million to the country, but that that's in severe debt, but only on the condition that they appoint Rufus T. Firefly, who we later see is played by Groucho Marx as their leader. 
So they ultimately agree to do that. They're in desperate need for money. Firefly shows up and he has this great gag entrance. We can go into more detail with where, you know, they're sort of announcing him. There's a lot of music in this movie and, you know, born from a, a little bit adopted from the vaudeville past of the of the Marx Brothers. They often incorporated a lot of music and there's a, a couple of uh, song and dance numbers. Maybe we can clip, you know, a couple sound bites from those. But they have this big gag entrance where they're kind of waiting for him to show up and he slides into the back on a fire pole. And we, 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 we follow Firefly as he meets the rest of the country's leader and sings about some of his ridiculous policies. Meanwhile, we learn of the scheme of Ambassador Trentino, who has the scheme where he's going to work with uh, Vero Marcal, and they're basically going to try to take over the country. He mentions that instead of a sort of revolution that they had been planning, he comes up with this new plan where if he just seduces Mrs. Teasdale, who clearly holds a lot of power here, he can, you know, (laughs) and money, right, through her money for sure, he can marry her and then take over with her. And Meanwhile, he also goes on to check with his spies, who we later learn are played by Chico Marx and Harpo Marx, named uh, Chickalini, and the chauffeur of Firefly, Pinky, who's played by Harpo. And he kind of connects with them and says, you know, I, I tasked you with following Firefly. How did that go? And, you know, in a very comedic way, we learn very unsuccessfully. And, and that's kind of the context that sets up the film. Yeah, that's a it's a good place to stop. I think there's so much to to chew on at the beginning. I think. You know, when we are first introduced to Rufus T. Firefly, he comes in hot. You know, he slides down the pole. Like you said, he takes off his like night shirt and is already wearing his suit and tie and suspenders and everything. And the and the entrance is just very classic, you know, sort of subverting expectations that, it, you know, you think you'd maybe see Groucho in this very regal outfit, but he's just kind of wearing his frumpy suit. And he's just so rapid fire. I, I noted this in our in our show notes, but like. I had to put the captions on because the jokes were so fast and it th- there's no room almost for like this sort of reaction. It's just boom, 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 boom. Now, what were you saying? As chairwoman of the reception committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? I've sponsored your appointment because I feel you are the most able statesman in all Fredonia. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it. I hear they're going to tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. You can leave in a taxi. If you can't get a taxi, you can leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a huff. You know you haven't stopped talking since I came here? You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. And it's the wordplay and it's the the zingers, but they're all just like, like you said, Benjamin, they're made in jest. And yeah, they just came out very, very fast. And uh, I, I loved it all. You know, it's uh, it's worth pointing out that we also do meet uh, Zeppo, uh, one of the other Marx brothers, and he's he's Bob. He plays Bob Roland, who's sort of like the straight man to Groucho's. And he's his personal wife. secretary, right? Kind of and following then, him around. And Mrs. Teasdale is played by Margaret Dumont, who Groucho once called like the fifth Marx brother. She's sort of the straight woman to counteract their their silliness. And the songs are terrific. Benjamin, any thoughts on that sort of initial chunk of of plot that Harry discussed? You know, the whole entry the entire kind of Busby Berkeley preparation, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where it builds and builds and builds and then all the swords are drawn and the, and the flower girls go through and then Groucho, you know, slides down the fire pole from above and holds up his cigar as an additional sword is a perfect example of being the culturally inept other Right. And I think I think before we can even address the plot itself, we just have to think about what was happening when this film was made. Mm-hmm. You know, passports at the time this film was made said Hebrew. They didn't all say Jew. There were people who were what does Hebrew mean? Hebrew is from the word Ivri, which means the other. 
It means the not the regular person. And uh, you know, World War One had only ended 15 years earlier. The stock market was in the tank. There would be four more years of depression. And this is released in November of 33, in January of 33, a regime rose to power in Germany that would result within 12 years of millions of civilian non-combatants, Jews killed, and tens of millions of others. And so the Marx brothers, you know, are doing this picture about war hysteria in the face of depression and in the face of obviously come, very likely coming war after World War I. What it is when we watch the Marx Brothers, we're seeing them behave in a way that, you know, it's, it's not acceptable. They're not following yeah. the cultural cues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got Groucho, who looks like he's from Eastern Europe. You've yeah. got Chico, who's from Southern Europe. Uh, as it were, you know, as an Italian. And you've got Harpo, who's obviously from somewhere around Germany with his blonde wig, who doesn't even speak. Right. And they behave as if they are Ivry. They're completely culturally inept. What do you mean you're not supposed to put your knee on someone's hand? What do you mean you're not supposed to cut off their tails? That's <laughs> how it's done where we come from. So you see that theme, and we can find it elsewhere, mm -hmm. of the others the Marx Brothers, going through and kind of goofing on everybody who's going into war hysteria. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So what no, seems no. absurd and and surface and just for fun is biting and, and meaningful social commentary. No question about it. I, I think that notion of the other you're describing is like so fundamental to, to the way their comedy plays out and to the whole 100%. setting of this movie. I mean, you were talking about it, Daniel, the way that he speaks sounds so different because everyone has this very sort of regal old money affect and you have <laughs> the sense that, yeah. that they're coming in like as this, you know, it, it's a little bit, it's, I think it's the Jewish story. I think it's the immigrant. I, I think he's the Jewish immigrant coming in, you know, like you said, like Groucho just looks so different from everyone else, carries that sort of European facade. He speaks, he's very snarky, very like quippy and fast talking. And I remember Daniel, before we started recalling, I was talking to you about how, you know, he, he the, the comedy feels so Jewish. And you mentioned that he's probably the template for what we kind of define sure. as that quippy Jewish comedy that we've seen afterwards. And it, it doesn't make sense that like the great irony of the film is that he's this sort of, He's this outsider, this immigrant. He has a very different sensibility to everyone else. And somehow he's found his place on top of everyone. He's the leader. He's kind of the right. head of this society. And, and, you know, the notion of that, like you're saying in context, Benjamin, about, you know, in the 1930s, this sort of new immigrant to what I do think this Fredonia is, you know, wherever it's supposed to be, it's this fictional country that isn't really located anywhere. And obviously it's a play on a lot of the European wars at mm -hmm. the time, but it, it does feel like a sort of stand for this sort of America, land of the free, anyone can, you know, there, there is no kind of historical context anyone can claim that power and just to see him you know rise to the top i mean the, the a lot of the comedy of this film is predicated on the fact that it's so out of place and so uncomfortable for everyone yeah. else and no one can understand in the film how to deal with this sort of outsider fast talking person who doesn't jive with the the politics and the tax policies and everything else that has been so natural to everyone else. It, it's, it's so uncomfortable for them. And that's what I think makes it so funny and so ridiculous. Yeah. We're liberated. We're liberated by being able to see them stand outside the rules. It's, it's like, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a, it's like a ludicrous catharsis that we experience because my gosh, 
Maybe I can stand outside society. I mean, obviously. And you know, and have power, things. right? And be a leader yeah. despite the, despite all that. Yeah, it's wild. Very much so. I think one of the scenes, Harry, you talked, you, we, we didn't touch on exactly, but like Benjamin, you were saying, you know, when they, when they first meet Trentino, when, when he meets his spies and we're introduced to them, there's this very chaotic scene where Harpo, you know, who, who has the biggest pockets on record. I mean, he's got a blowtorch, he's got scissors, he's got horns, he's got records. It's everything in, in those huge pants of his, but it's so frenetic, so chaotic. He takes those shears. I, I, I mean, I lost count, like how many times he's cutting hair. He's cutting my favorite gag. He's cutting tails. We got some bris illusions in there. We'll talk about that maybe for the second half, but I, you know, I just think it's, 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 there's so much going on after Firefly has ascended to power and he's become sort of the leader. He holds his first cabinet meeting, which is also just like quick, 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 tons of jokes, all sorts of, uh, you know, before you take up the taxes, you got to take up the carpet kind of thing. You know, he doesn't really want to talk about old news, new news. It's all just kind of just go, there's nothing going on. And it's sort of like you said, Harry, like a satire of, of, of government, of power, things like that. He does, after his meeting, he does hire Ciccolini and Pinky to become uh, his, you know, his secretary of war. And then there's a really funny scene where Pinky comes in and there's a series of tattoos. First we see an old face and then we see a dancing woman and then we see a, a house and then a dog house and just all sorts of chaos. And and I think a lot of these gags probably are not as funny with me describing them on a audio podcast. So I would recommend to everyone, pause the podcast, go rent it online, go watch the film and then come back and watch it uh, or come back and listen to us. I, I think, think that that particular point of yeah. the, uh, appointment, as it were, of mm -hmm. these ministers of war. Right. Um, you know, that that is, again, it seems like it's just crazy French farce or something. But in fact, it's commenting on this kind of pivot point of nearly random and ego driven and the way in which some of these epic things go forward. It's almost like a retelling of the Trojan War Mm -hmm. where because of the dishonored general feeling that he's been uh, one-upped, he's going to take an entire civilization down the drain with him right. and uh, chase yep. this woman down. And in this case, you have a person who doesn't seem to subscribe to any of the rules of authority nope. hiring somebody whom he just met as a peanut vendor. You, right. could, not, you could not write a better opposite than... You know, I met this person at Yale and he's yeah, exactly. been a, 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 a state state circuit judge for 20 years. No, it's quite the opposite. And I think by having a counterexample mm -hmm. of, of the absurd ascension to power, it indicates it points at the absurd ascension of power and the absurd ascension to war. Rufus did offer him a job at the Mint, but then. Uh, Ciccolini said he doesn't like that taste. He doesn't like that. Flavor. So uh, I'll jump in. I'll jump in here sure. because that's just that. Like I, that's a great wordplay, and maybe we'll even right. key that one in because it's yeah. awesome. And and one of the things that and and I'm about to you know I, I I've spoken about being a former film major at the beginning of the pod, and I oh you when, are Harry, you've never mentioned that. I I've mentioned it a couple <laughs> times, but I remember when you chose this film. This was one, and we had discussed the Marx Brothers and and this actual this actual film in, in an earlier um in in a class that I took years ago. But I, I was able to unearth some of my notes and. You know, I saw this great point that was made about the uh, the sort of wordplay, right? Because that puns and wordplay, I mean, that is such a, it, it's such a, it's so embedded into their comedy. I mean, a lot of their mix up and a lot of the frustrations that they have for the rest of 
everyone around them is because no one can seem to understand, you know, their quippiness, their, their right. wordplay, their puns. And, you know, the way that this was just, we, we spoke about it in classes, it's just the sort of, it's disrupting sort of traditional structures, you know, traditional language, traditional speak. Like there's a very, there's a formality to the way that a lot of these sort of old school, you know, yes. in power people were, were speaking and they're just completely disrupting it. They're taking advantage. They're talking not just quicker, but also just playing with twisting their words, right? At some point in that general meeting sequence, you yeah. know, someone says that, you know, the workers want fewer hours in the right, day. Right, so right, we'll right. start by, uh, you know, reducing their lunch. And yeah. it's just like, obviously what was not intended, but it's, it's you know, he's kind of twisting their words against them. It, it's this uh, real reclamation of the language. And it's it's mm -hmm. part of what we're talking about, the sort of Jewish immigrant tale, the, you know, the, the person who's supposed to be coming from some foreign country where English wasn't the first language and you'd expect them to be kind of behind society and they don't know the formalities. They can't speak in, in the accents and the regality of what we would consider to be high language. And what they're doing is they're twisting that on its head and saying, no, with my, you know, language, with my kind of cultural, my lower, so to speak, cultural language, right. I can twist your words and take power from you and I can take oh, advantage yeah, yeah. and I can, you know, break you down. And, and I think that is just such a, such a powerful sort of, you know, reclamation, you know, through the, the ethnic cultural, so to speak, language. And, you know, I, I think that's such a big part of the movie. That's a great echo of their behavior and the uh, the plot uh, approach that the language itself is disruptive and is not following the rules. That's an excellent insight. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, well you have said. stuff, but it comes across in the most like, not cutesy, but like witty and like lighthearted way where like Gracho's talking about the rules of ad his administration earlier. And he says, if any man should come between a husband and his bride, we find out which one she prefers by letting her decide. If she prefers the other man, the husband steps outside. We stand them up against the wall and pop goes the weasel. He's singing a song about the rules, about the, the basically the legal system of the country. Right. And nearly every offense, nearly every offense is met with capital punishment. Yeah. And Pop Goes the Weasel was already happening in Europe. It had happened, you know, again, the World War One had ended only 15 years ago. What is 15 years ago? Uh, that is, you know, the early 2000s. That's not too long ago. The 2008 was the collapse. I mean, people still remember those kinds of things. Right. So the point is to say Pop Goes the Weasel is, it, it's almost grotesque. It's it and it and it's irreverent. And at the same time, it's completely true. I think the the delivery mechanism for for some of these lines, uh, you know, really works in a song and coming from Groucho. It's kind of uh, like I said, you know, very palatable. I wanted to jump back just to the plot to kind of set our, our wheels in motion. Yes, here. yes. After so after hiring uh, Pinky and Ciccolini, you know, Pinky as his chauffeur who never seems to get it right with the car or the, with the motorcycle. And, uh, you know, Ciccolini is appointed a secretary of war. And then uh, his personal secretary, Bob Rowland, decides that uh, he should start a war with Trentino by sort of insulting him. And and so what they do is they crash a tea party that he thinks he was not invited to. And he starts his feud there. And he arrives and he starts, you know, he finds Trentino, you know, uh, Flirting with Mrs. Teasdale, trying to to form some sort of romantic connection. Pleading almost. Hitting on her for sure. And then Groucho pleading. He's like on his knees. He's like oh, begging. Yeah. He's like, please, I love you. Oh, pleading. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Totally. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Firefly comes in, sort of shoves Trentino out of the way and, you know, starts up his uh, romantic. Firefly comes in. 
and just sidesteps him. Basically, you know, there's a there's a slapping war that happens, and um, it's at this point that Trentino and and Firefly have declared war on each other, and uh, that sort of you know that sort of sets our our, our conflict in motion. I wanted to uh, talk about this this tea party sequence because it's it's sure. an amazing scene. But specifically, what we you were just describing, sort of Trentino, you know, on the ground, kind of pleading and this like ridiculous mismatched experiences. Right. Because obviously, we know that you know Mrs. Teasdale is obsessed with you know Firefly for some reason, and she is I, we just never so not really interested. Understand why? And it it really it reminded me of, and I, this is a little bit of a stretch and a biblical illusion. And you I'm know, you guys can it. call me out if you think that you know the Marx Brothers or or Benjamin, your grandfather, didn't intend this. But this is definitely what I what I saw. It reminded me of you know the story of Esther Miguel and Esther and you know for people who aren't familiar it'll just I'm not going to cover the entire plot now but there's this incredible uh, moment at the end where there's these two I don't know if they're tea parties but just small parties are, are hosted between uh you know between the sort of triangle of, of the King Ahasuerus and there's Esther and there's Haman and you know they all have different intentions and they're trying to communicate them but it's kind of falling on deaf ears and there's this moment where Esther kind of reveals that uh, Haman had been pl- had been plotting to kill, you know, her people, her herself and the Jewish people. And Ahasuerus is obviously naturally furious at this and intends to kill Haman because of it. But there's this great, almost comedic moment. I mean, the way I'm thinking about it now and the way, like in this context, it, it feels like a scene out of a Marx Brothers movie where, you know, Haman kind of falls to the floor pleading and he ends up falling onto Esther's bed because he's pleading with her. And then Ahasuerus right. sees this and says, what, are you trying to sleep with my wife? What's going on now? And it's this, you know, ridiculous, unintentional. It's like things are just getting worse and worse. And this, you know, mismatched intentions and just everyone kind of falling on each other in the context of this party. And it, it really just, it screams, you know, in in that context, it, it makes the the whole episode in, in the Megillah just feel a little bit more, you know, Marx brothery to me, but it, mm-hmm. it just makes this scene feel like you're, you're seeing the delicacies of political, you know, machinations kind of unfolding. And, and the way you were describing Benjamin is kind of being a, you know, a, a just playing on the context and like the, how such small things can go to war. I mean, you have this moment where, Firefly kind of just instigates this war that wasn't necessarily going to happen with uh, with Trentino and, and with the Sil- Sylvanias just because he kind of rebuffs him. There's this moment where he slaps Trentino because he calls him a, a startup and he he makes upstart. a joke out of it. An upstart, upstart. thank you. An upstart. Yeah. An upstart. And he even says to him, he's like, remind me, what was that thing exactly, you called me? Right? He says it again and he slaps him again. And it's just so <laughs> ridiculous and fickle, but it's so fragile. I mean, this launches their entire peoples into war because of, like, Firefly doesn't seem to actually care about what's going on, but He's, yeah. He just well, follows I love, the train. I love your comparison with Megillat Esther. Uh, the only difference is uh, right after the king says, uh, are you trying to sleep with my wife? Which is uh, he borrowed uh, from a uh, from um, Raging Bull, obviously. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. But um, <laughs> they immediately cover Haman's face because there's only one where one place that's that you're going once it the king has said something like that and no one wants to look at a condemned man's face right so um i agree that there's a you know there's a kind of epic similarity but we didn't we we don't cover uh tarantino's face um you know and and there's also even a sense of the kind of kind of meaningless hysteria that becomes meaningful consequence and totally. I'll just give you an example of that that I love so much. Very briefly, there's a, a character, Herschel Osterpopular. He was kind of the Groucho Marx of the time of about, you know, 1889, thereabouts. And he ultimately became 
uh, a jester. He was a real man. He became a jester in the court of the Val Shem Tov's grandson. And there's a story told about him that, you know, he was just like the tramp. He was just like Groucho, dressed in rags. And he used wit and he used non-demeaning wit to get by and fence with royalty and what have you. And one day he, he stumbles into an inn and he says, I'm dying of hunger, please. I'm dying of hunger. Please feed me. And the woman, the innkeeper looks him up and down and says, what are you talking about? You know, I, I don't know that you're going to be able to pay. You know, get out of here. And he goes, in that case, I'm going to do I'm going to have to do what my father did. And she's like, goes into one of these hysterias. Oh my God, what's he mean? What's he going to do? Is he going to, and she, she builds herself into an hysteria because she has no idea what his father did. And so she ends up convincing herself that it'd be in her own best interest to serve him. He served this remarkable meal and he says, ah, oh, that was the best meal I've had since last Pesach. And she says, I must know, I must know. What is it that your father did? He goes, my father, he did what he had to do. And she says, yeah, but what was that? She said, he says, well, when he couldn't get a meal, he would go to bed hungry. But the point is he served because she goes into this crazy self-generated hysteria, right. which right. happens again when Groucho says, Maybe he's going to come and he's going to insult me again. And maybe he won't take my apology. And maybe, and by the time he's finished analyzing it, he's in an hysteria. Right, exactly. Yeah. Back hysteria. And the guy walks in and he slaps him without any Right instinct. away, yeah, exactly. 100%. And we're going to get to that scene because it's amazing. Yeah, that's sort of the penultimate uh, before the war. So just to continue moving the plot along a little bit. So after this whole moment when Trentino is obviously... Uh, wants to engage in this war. So he discovers that the war plans for Fredonia are being kept in Mrs. Teasdale room. And he sends his, you know, his spies, Ciccolini and Pinky to steal them. So the two of them independently decide to dress up like Firefly. They have each of them on their own kind of has this great plan. If I could dress up like Firefly, I can trick Mrs. Teasdale into getting it. But when they both do it, it creates you know, confusion in too many people. They are successful in getting the plans from her, but then there's this great moment where Firefly, he had been locked in the bathroom so that he wouldn't interfere with them. And then he breaks out and he catches up to them. And we have this incredible mirror sequence, which, you know, I'm sure I think it's the most famous sequence of the entire movie where we see Pinky, who's dressed as Firefly, kind of faces across from the actual Firefly. They're in identical outfits with, you know, the same fake mustache kind of and glasses covering their face. And he mirrors his movements, which is something that I know I've seen, you know, in plenty of other films and right. I wonder I wonder you know where if this was the originator or this I'm sure was a vaudeville act that had been going on for a long time but he kind of mirrors his actions exactly and they it's a very extended sequence it's not just for a moment you know instead of just sort of reaching out and figuring out that that isn't a mirror Firefly just kind of goes with it for a couple minutes and they you know twirl around and they flip hats onto their heads and it's this great moment that ultimately ends with uh, Ciccolini showing up dressed in his Firefly costume. And when a third Firefly shows up, that kind of breaks the facade of the mirror. So ultimately he shows up and the, he is caught and captured while Pinky manages to escape without being captured. This node in the in the show actually had been done in other shows. I believe it was done by Harold Lloyd. Yeah. Um, there are several examples of it being done. So it's kind of a trope. But why is it so relevant? Why is it so um, epic? And it's because it is its own world with its own rules. One of them dropped the hat and he and, and in the middle of trying to verify whether it's a mirror, he reaches across the plane and helps him with that. Yeah. Like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Watch yeah. carefully 
they have a black and a white hat while they're circling with one another. I noticed and, that. And the audience expects it to be, ah, there it is, black and white hat. But somehow he switched hats and they put them on, they're yes. both white. And so it is, again, an example of a world where there is, it's there are their own rules and it's at once pure uh, entertainment and at the same time, it's it's commentary on you know people trying to be just like the other person. Right. And he's not really trying to verify whether it's a mirror. He's turning to the camera and saying, "How can I outwit this other?" Right. right. Like that. right. Sharing right. with us the ways in which he's going to do it, mm -hmm. and then he gets the idea, and then we see him do it. But then yeah. he's generous when the other guy boffs up and drops the hat. He's they're generous. Yeah. And yeah. so it's again this example of. Uh, entertainment and and commentary immersed in something so epic. I just loved, you know, the sort of attention to detail. You know, you have a very tightly wound string, but then as the scene progresses, it starts to get frayed a little bit and you start to see Nicely the seams said. a little bit and, yeah. and the movements are a little bit off and then they switch places and then they switch back and then the third one comes in and it's just, yeah, it's just pretty hilarious. And like you said, Harry, as the scene winds down, uh, Pinky gets away, but Ciccolini is caught and then he goes, he's court-martialed. I also want to point out, just in this scene, I, I you know, there, there's a lot you could read into the mirror scene. And totally. of course, it could just be it's ridiculous and funny and, and everything you were saying before, which Benjamin, is. but yeah. which it definitely is. Yeah. But, you know, because this is Jews on film and we have to read the sort of Jewish stretches and, you know, there, there is something to say about I think it almost in some ways reduces Groucho's character, right? Firefly into a sort of caricature, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's very easy to kind of replace him. You, you throw on the, you know, the fake mustache, the glasses, yeah. you, yeah. you almost embrace that outsider look, that European look. And then it's like anyone can kind of transform, transform themselves yeah. into it. And I'm not sure if there's a commentary there on, you know, the, the sort of outsiderness of them, the, the assimilation aspect of it, you know, the kind of morphing yourself, but in, in the reverse, it's almost like, you know, the, the blonde haired guy is the one who's turning himself a little bit more Jewish, playing into those, those roles a little little bit more it's kind of right. that replacement but there, there's certainly something going on with you know the, the, the sort of mirroring that they're creating and this ability you too to can be an outsider in some ways and in yeah, some totally. ways that's preferable and I, I think it's inverting you know the the classic assimilation trope that you'd expect from the rest of the movie or from that's a great comment totally i mean yeah there were there were moments in that scene where i'm like having a hard time keeping track of who's Rufus, who's Ciccolini and who's Pinky, because all the comedy was just done so well and it was done so like in in sync with each other. They are, the after only, all, brothers. Right. So there is some exactly, sort of, you know, Mark's similarity brothers. in that regard. But I really do love that that read, uh, Harry, for sure. You know, after this mirror scene happens, uh, Pinky manages to get away, but Ciccolini is caught and he is court-martialed as the Secretary of War. And uh, he's put on this sort of trial in front of everyone, which is another great example of this very quick rapid fire dialogue you know Ciccolini and Firefly are friends he you know he feels a little betrayed at first and everyone is maybe a little bit more aggressive towards Ciccolini but Firefly is you know he's had such a hard time let's cut him a break I tried to like I said before the recording I tried to take a sample of of some of the puns as they were coming up but they're discussing things and they're you know Firefly and Ciccolini are, are placing bets on how how the trial's gonna go I'll, I'll give you I'll give you 20% I'll give you 80 da, da, da. And, and throughout the throughout the trial they're kind of checking in with each other on their bets to see if they want to raise the uh it, it's just like it's it's a farce the whole thing is just you know, there's tons of, of jokes and things like that. Chigalini, 
Give me a number from one to ten. Eleven. Right. Now I ask you one. What is it has a trunk but no key? Weighs 2,000 pounds and lives in a circus. That's irrelevant. Irrelevant? Hey, that's the answer. There's a whole lot of relevance in the circus. That sort of testimony we can eliminate. That's a fine. I'll take some. You'll take what? Eliminate. A nice cold glass eliminate. Hey, boss, I'm going to good. <laughs> I just love that scene and it really showcased the writing. Well, you I didn't want... finish the speech. You know, he gets oh, up. Sure. Rufus, you know, one of my favorite lines in the show is he says to Mrs. Teasdale, I can only offer you a Rufus over your head. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, Firefly gets up there and he sees, he says, who's defending you? And he says, oh, nobody defends me. I don't have any parents. And so right. Rufus seems to be defending him. And he gets up and he says, look at Ciccolini. He sits there alone. An abject figure. I abject. I implore you, send him back to his father and brothers who are waiting for him with open arms in the penitentiary. I suggest that we give him 10 years in Leavenworth or 11 years in Twelveworth. It's, a, again, a flip on <laughs> the whole notion that we oh, are yeah. supposed to go and care for the uncared for and right. showing how easy it is to go ahead and flip on someone. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think it's brilliant because he's using all the tones of sympathy mm -hmm. and then in the tone of sympathy, making an excoriating request of the court. Right. I did neglect to mention after this awesome, you know, trial, awesome wordplay happens during the trial and this, uh, you know, Mrs. Teasdale, who's really trying her best, uh, despite Firefly's efforts, to make a war not happen. So she is gathered with all the other women of Fredonia and tried to have a sort of last ditch effort to prevent war from happening. They're brokering a deal. And Benjamin, this is sort of the scene you were talking about before where she pulls Firefly aside and she says, all right, let's just shake his hand. We'll apologize and we won't have to go to war. And then, like you said, I'll be only too happy to meet Ambassador Trentino and offer him on behalf of my country the right hand of good fellowship. And I feel sure that he will accept this gesture in the spirit in which it is offered. But suppose he doesn't. A fine thing that'll be. I hold out my hand and he refuses to accept it. That'll add a lot to my prestige, won't it? Me, the head of a country snubbed by a foreign ambassador. Who does he think he is that he can come here and make a sap out of me in front of all my people? So then as soon as Trentino then shows up, he slaps him right in the face. Like he says a few words and doesn't really allow this conversation to happen, but he slaps himself, he slaps Trentino in the face, declares war, and then there's a whole song and dance that, all right, Fredonia's going to war, huzzah. It's a very unusual piece because you don't usually see Groucho making an extended hypothetical mm -hmm. and, uh, and then convincing himself of you know putting himself as it were in an altered state and of right. course it it's it could be a gag i mean it is a gag there's no question about it but in terms sure. of the plot and in terms of you know how groucho and particularly this character go forward this is a very unusual thing and it's kind of like the overthink that sometimes people say jews have you know you're right, overthinking right. it totally it's kind of being cerebral and so it's not waiting for the situation to happen and evaluating it and, and taking time. He makes the postulate, he answers the postulate, and then he steps up the hysteria, exchange by exchange with himself. And then when the guy comes in, he says, you won't accept my apology, ah, huh? <laughs> you know? And you insult me, you know? And we, how often do we do that? How often oh, do somebody not answer our text 
And yes. we say, oh, it can only be yeah. because they finally found out that I dropped one of their spoons in the disposal and I never told them. Right. You know, and whatever it is, you 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 convince yourself. And part of our job as a Jew or as a person who subscribes to the Jewish ethic is to try to assume the good of the other person. Mm-hmm. It's to, you know, the famous story. Fellas walking down the street. He sees a little boy and the little boy pushes the old man down. Oh, and he's about to attack the little boy. And then a bus goes by. The little boy saved the old man's life because the old man was about to step into the street. And it's an example of how we don't always judge fairly. And Rufus is not judging fairly because he's convinced himself uh, this warlike behavior. They're going to war. We announced that with this amazing uh, song and dance number at the end where we have all four Marx Brothers kind of in a line together, you know, doing a little medley. In case you haven't heard before, I think they think we're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. We're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. 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 Oh, hide it, hide it, hide it, hide it, hide it, hide it, hide it. You have to address that because a moment ago, Mrs. Teasdale was assembling the population against war. Right. One yep. slap later, everybody is doing a ritual dance to embrace the war. Yeah. And and the Marx Brothers, you know, which would be tough to film today, they go into minstrel moves. Oh, right. God. You know, they've done minstrel yeah. moves in show after show. And how they're in a chorus line saying, oh, boy, we get to go to war. And people are doing these, you know, giant moves of bowing down. It's just absolutely wild right i I love that you called it spiritual and that you point out the bowing i mean one of the lines i wrote it down in the song is you know all god's children are going to war like there's there's something so spiritual and so fulfilled it's a goof on gospel right absolutely supposed to be elevated to a point of high spiritual uh engagement and just feel love and feel that the world is open and the place you know, amazing grace and swing low, sweet chariot. And they're doing it about, about revisiting the destruction and needlessness of war. We just sort of jump ahead and we, we kind of meet up in the war. I don't know how much time has passed, but it's clear that the Fredonians are losing the war. We get all these gags with sort of the bullets. There's that great one where, you know, Groucho kind of puts the pot on his head and, you know, checks to see if he's safe and then it kind of shatters. And there's this whole thing. It's, it's clearly not going well. Suddenly he gets a call from Mrs. Teasdale where she says she's under attack and needs him to come. So he comes over with his you know whole crew and they're surrounded. And it seems like they're they're likely to lose. They're surrounded on all sides. Every, nothing's really going well. There's this great gag that I'm sure we'll get into to where, you know, Chico's talk or Chico's talking about how, you know, he switched sides and he was on the other side as, you know, despite being the general of war because, but then he came back to this one because they have better food and it's just <laughs> a great, I would, I'd call That's it a Jewish, Jewish moment. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah, jinx. <laughs> for sure. Exactly. And, uh, and it basically seems like all is going to end and Trentino kind of bust, burst through and it seems like he's there to defeat him. And, and some of the, they end up tying him up. They end up capturing him and that 
in that one action, apparently just swings the entire tides of the war. They go. start pelting him with the different fruit they have. It looks like they have oranges and apples maybe, and they start throwing them at him until finally he admits defeat and announces that the Fredonians have won. And then the, the movie kind of closes with this one moment where Mrs. Teasdale then sings this very joyous hail to Fredonia. It seems like this big regal event. And, you know, in a, in a way that they've been kind of subverting and, and, challenging that the entire movie right you know the marx brothers basically just start hurling fruit ah, towards her yeah. and, and she kind of tries to sing through it but the movie ends in this very sort of anticlimactic let's right. pull down the the revelry that's happening and uh, and that it that that ends the film so i'm sure there's a lot of gags in there that yeah. we should definitely touch on so you know benjamin what, what what's going on in those final war scenes i think the key is that we again see the marx brothers in their roles, taking up characters and taking us farther. So, for example, you know, it starts with the war is declared and all of a sudden uh, Harpo, as as Pinky, is riding as Paul Revere and he's going house to house and, and declaring yes. war. And what happens? He ends up in the house of the American vendor that they had been kind of in a vendor war with earlier on where they'd washed their feet in his, in his uh, drink. Lemonade. Now he's dominated the American vendors right. household. <laughs> Again, right. in each segment, you see that this competition, this, the, the war of the class against the war of the class less, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then if you mark it all the way through the war, Groucho is, uh, a southern, a southern uh, corporal. Then he's dressed in Robert E. Lee's traditional outfit right, with, right. with well, the southern hat. Then he's dressed either as a Russian um, yeah, yeah. soldier or as a as a British beef eater. Meanwhile, the, the belt, the the other side is wearing either steel helmets from from uh, the British or the Belgian or French kind of spine turtle right, right. helmets. And Groucho's just changing and changing. And finally, he's Ever Daniel Boone, and Pinky right. goes and cuts off his tail. Right. So yes. Here? Is it just zany for zany sense? No. Daniel Boone was the guy who went all the way out and gave his life at the Alamo. Mm -hmm. uh, Lee is considered the person who could have won the war, but for American industrialism and the ability to, to just... Uh, overwhelm the enemy, which is the same thing we did in World War II. So the right. point is, they are they are just making one iconographic reference after the other, and so that what looks like absurdism is actually biting and meaningful social commentary. And they do manage to get in plenty of gags, like you mentioned, Harry. You know, there's a few gags where like Rufus is on the phone, phoning in for some help, and. Uh, you know, they talk into the thing and, and I, I'm, I'm, we'll probably clip it here, but like, I think there's plenty of good stuff in there in terms of like the very quick witted, uh, sort of, uh, puns and plays on words that I think really, um, show that like Firefly has not lost his sense of humor, even in a time of war, you know, at, at some point he takes out like a, uh, instrument case, loads up his Tommy gun and begins to shoot on his own people. Oh, that's, but only Zumbo like just, informs him after the fact. You're shooting your own men. Yeah, yeah uh, well. that you know that's black comedy right there. Right. Yeah. No question. And then yeah, the Harpo implications gets of that. Stuck in the ammunition closet, and we're just lights himself we're up. We're just we're going. Oh my God! What, yeah. What's going to happen to him? Poor guy. Yeah. So there's yeah. there's real anxiety 
happening inside of this craziness, which itself has a method. And their ultimate victory definitely feels accidental at that point. Oh, because and it, it's a lot of this has just and I think it's everything you're saying about the sort of commentary on, on you know, the warmongering of people at that mm-hmm. time. But it's just like they go to war because of this indecision, these inadvertent slaps like it's just it, it's almost like it's very uh, they're just being like pulled towards war. And then once they're in there, it's you know, it's all just kind of, falling out so ridiculously, which is why I mentioned, you know, when the war actually turns and somehow they win the war. I mean, we just watched 10 minutes of them, you know, kind of being beaten and their own ineptitude getting in the way and just like dismantled by all sides. And all of a sudden it just, it's all kind of just careless and happenstance. That's kind of the feeling of getting us to the end. The key is that Tarantino ends up in a stockade. Right. And who who is put in the stockade? Typically the other, typically Mm -hmm. the outsider. Typically the person who just wandered into town and who throws the fruit, fruit the entire town. So now all of a sudden you have the head of society is in the stockade uh, right in front of us. And he, he is now the, uh, the, the receiver of the bad fruit, but that's not enough. When Mrs. Teasdale starts singing operatically, they Mm -hmm. suddenly remember their vaudevillian roots, and they throw rotten fruit at the performer. Uh So again, the rule is flipped again. So in every aspect of this film, you see rules being flipped, and you see the whole notion of of tradition and convention being flipped on its ear. And we are our takeaway is that we can be like that. It comes at a risk. People might try to throw fruit at you, but be aware that that these kinds of major conflicts can occur at the snap of a peanut. Right. Exactly. Yep. I yep. had just one more thing uh, to, to tag on to your comment, Benjamin, about the different costumes. For me, it sort of felt like regardless of the time frame, war is a constant, you know, throughout the ages, you know, the the futility of war and like just the fact that it exists in every era and the foolishness of it all, I think, you know, having that span of costumes, like you said, from the Revolutionary to the Civil War to World War One to Napoleon times to all, all, you know, spanning all the ages, it just sort of shows that, like, although the time frames and the rationales for being, you know, for going into war have changed, a lot of it has very much stayed the same. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, I, the- you, you reminded me of the Napoleonic reference where uh, Harpo's wearing... Uh, a uh, three three corn a three cornered hat, and the machine gun spins it. It's, that's just yeah. scary. Yeah, yeah. And with that, why don't I take us to break? And following, we will discuss our rankings of the film. Welcome back from the break. So now we are going to go through the film Duck Soup and we're going to discuss our rankings for the film on in terms of its content, cast and crew, themes, and just kind of come up with a collective answer for each of us of how Jewish is this film? Benjamin, why don't, why don't you share some of your thoughts, get us started a little bit. How would you constitute the Jewishness of this film? As we said at the beginning, what is it to be a Jew? And therefore, what would it be to be the flavor of Jewish? And to my mind, the quality of Judaism really can be reduced to one thing. And that is, how does one treat others, which in 
ultimately is about how one treats oneself. It's the same, it's one and the same. So what we see in this picture is that those who do not behave that way, in other words, those who demean are ridiculed by the Marx Brothers. In other words, only when people behave in a demeaning way do they earn ridicule from them. And so because they, as it were, represent the other, they represent the immigrant status, they represent people who do not belong, who do not follow the rules. You know, every single, you know, Groucho will put his ashes in someone's palm. Ciccolini will, you know, twist around something with words. Harpo will, you know, bring you a steaming cup of coffee from his trousers. How do any of these things fit in? And the answer is they don't. And they're exactly what it is to be a Jew. We do not necessarily fit in. If you think of Borat, for example, here's a person who looks like Groucho, to some extent dresses like Groucho. And how does he make social commentary? Because he's got a completely other set of constructs. And when he washes his face in the commode, people go, oh, well, I guess that's how he does it. And they're embarrassed for him, but they accept it because he's on a completely different construct. So from my mind, this film has a masterful way of approaching this sense that it, within, within six years, we're going to begin another world war. And they see this kind of hysteria approaching and they see the kind of bigotry and they're making a social commentary on it. And before I looked at it from the uh, perspective of how to discuss it with you, I feel like in terms of representing what it is to be a Jew, which means to be the other, I think it's really a home run. Harry, how about yourself? Where do you fall? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of the points that you were making just in terms of the, you know, the otherness of these characters and the way that I think and through this discussion as well, we kind of see how they champion that and how ultimately it, it results in this kind of reversal. You know, from the beginning, there's already this, I think we, we spoke about this, this sort of shocking scene, seeing someone that I think is very clearly to us. And, and I think to people watching just sort of, you know, culturally, physically, you know, European Jewish, he, he looks like this European Jewish immigrant and seeing him, you know, at the top of the of the rankings, you know, he was kind of somehow catapulted up there because, you know, people just wanted him in power, but just seeing him there is like already so, so shocking, so revolutionary. And then the way that they kind of assimilate the rest of the characters around them to, to, you know, act in that ridiculousness, you know, shed that facade of, uh, of, you know, regalness and, and stuff like that, and just become, you know, take on some of the, the Marx Brothers sensibilities and some of what I would define as a lot of this Jewish comedy. I mean, I think that that all is so clearly there, you know, thematically that that's definitely going on. I think, you know, we, we said this before, but Danny, you spoke about how, how they kind of set the template for, you know, Jewish comedy right. and that, that snarkiness and that very, you know, quick witted, mm -hmm. just these sort of like ridiculousness. And I think in some ways they're definitely, you know, not necessarily smug, but certainly the smartest in the room and, you know, yeah. definitely making everyone else kind of trip over them. But I think, read in the context of this film, it's a real reclamation over, you know, where the center of culture is, where the center of society can be. And, and it's pulling them into their, into their aura. So uh, I, I certainly see all of that. I, you know, some of the other things we consider in this context are, you know, the content, you know, and, uh, and cast and crew, but specifically in, in the content front, you know, nothing is in, in, is explicitly, I would say Jewish in terms of certainly not in terms of, 
you know, religious iconography. Right. You know, no one is wearing, no one is dressed doing anything. No one is actually, you know, handling something that's explicitly Jewish. But I don't think that means that there's no Jewish content because, you know, even just in the look, even in the type of humor, I, I think that all would be considered content. So, you know, the the lack of sort of that sort of that explicit iconography, you know, and not just a religious Jewishness, but even, you know, as far as I understand, you know, a sort of secular Jewishness, like that, because none of that is so explicitly noted in the film, like it really is just about this other story. You know, I, I, I'm not going to give away my ranking just yet, but it's, it's kind of, it's pulling me away from saying that this is, you know, explicitly the most Jewish movie I've ever seen. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about it Jewish because I think it very clearly is, but, you know, no one is referred to as a Jew. No one actually says their Jewishness. I don't think we're led to believe that any of them are Jewish so much as they are just these immigrant outsiders. So Fredonians and uh, Sylvanians. Exactly. Exactly. In the context of the movie. So that kind of situates a little bit of my ranking that I'll I'll get to after we hear a chance from you, Daniel. So what did you think? Um, well, you know, all of what you said, both of you, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of in line with, I think, you know, just, to, just to go back a little bit. So the cast and crew, like we said before, the Marx brothers, all Jewish, you know, and, and Groucho, you know, famously, he was attributed to this quote, um, about this Hillcrest, Hillcrest country club in, in California where, you know, they didn't let Jews into any other country club. And then he said, I would never be a member of a club which would have me as one of its members. And this was about a country club that let in Jews. And so, like, you know, Groucho culturally was very Jewish. Um, and at this time, you know, I think I think one of the main sort of examples of what it meant to be like a, a Jewish comic, one of the many, I think. But in this film, like you said, Harry, nothing explicitly Jewish. I think a lot of where my sentiment would be like bucketed into would be like thematic and like humor and things like that. And like you mentioned, Benjamin, just this sort of sense of otherness, you know, whether it's the pace of how they're talking, their behavior, their outfits, like everyone at the beginning of that first scene where everyone has got the medals and the sort of regalia and the really nice ball gowns and Groucho, you know, comes in frumpy, untucked shirt, his tie is undone, just like very much a, sort of a frumpy immigrant other is that's like a very Jewish theme. And then throughout the film, that's something like, you know, as you've heard, we've weaved throughout the film. So I'm going to say that most of the eggs in my basket are probably on the, on the theme side. There's two reads on what Groucho is credited as having said that I would not be a member of a club that would have me as a, admit me as a member. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that was that sometimes clubs would allow him in, but not other Jews. Ah, interesting. And so he's saying, I would not subscribe to a group that would admit me as a celebrity, but not admit other Jews. What a mensch. That's awesome. I did not know so, that. Um, and, and another story about that that I want to tell you, yeah, which please. goes to what you just said about uh, the finery and the grubbery. Right. The, the Marx Brothers, I learned this from my family, discovered that there was a Beverly Hills diners club or dinner club, I should say, which rotated from grand house to grand house around Beverly Hills, but it did not permit Jews. And so Groucho and his brothers found out where the next home was going to host the Beverly Hills dinner club. And they barged in and had to go food delivered to them in the living room and basically, you know, just made a base, you know, a giant show of woofing down to go food at the Beverly Hills Dinner Club in their living room. So that way of acting out in their lives 
what they were doing in their films shows you that they knew what they were doing. Something else to add on that, like in this book, when I was talking before about how they negotiated deal with Irving Thalberg to like get their movies moved over to MGM Grant, it seems like every day when they came to meet with him, he would always be busy. So they would do things like go to the commissary, grab some potatoes, and then start baking potatoes in his fireplace in his office while he was waiting. Or they would put filing cabinets up against his door so that they couldn't, uh, so that he couldn't come out. Or they would blow their cigar smoke underneath his door to kind of, so they were really like pranksters like this in real life. And I'm not sure if Art is imitating life or life is imitating art or, you know, which way it goes. But, uh, you know, definitely such a fun film to discuss. And uh, but I do feel like it's time. Let's, you know, talk turkey here. Where are we holding in terms of numbers? Um, Benjamin, you're our guest on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. How Jewish do you find the film Duck Soup? Well, in the spirit of the Marx Brothers and Duck Soup, and fitting in with the established order, I would give this a gimel. Okay, a gimel. I like that. That's a three out of five Jewish stars. There. Uh, <clears throat> Harry, how about yourself? Yeah, honestly, the gimel feels like the right call in this case. Like it's, it, it, there's a lot of like, I this, this is a proud Jewish film. You know, this is when I think, you know, good for the Jews, a real reclamation of, you know, cultural norms. And it's, I think there, there's an obvious Jewishness without this movie being a Jewish preaching movie. That's almost pushing me to give it actually even a little bit more because even though it's not, it's not one of those, uh, you know, it's not one of those fiddler on the roofs, like, oh, give me a list of Jewish films like this one. But I think the Marx Brothers are known as this really important Jewish group. And like, you, you see it in the movie. There, yeah. There is a Jewishness to them, if not explicitly. So I'm, I'm going, it's like Gimel, right? So it's 3.25. It's not okay. much more, but uh-huh. a little over three, because I really, I felt some of that Jewishness there, even though not a lot of explicit. I wasn't clear enough. I was attempting to be flip and to ah. be like the Marx Brothers not fit into the category at all. And okay, Gimmel okay. was not the... Um, it wasn't three. It was just... It wasn't three. Gimmel. It is the winning number, the winning sign on a dreidel. On a dreidel. Ah, got it. So I'm saying if you've spun the dreidel for this film, it would land on Gimmel. I, I think you should stick with the Gimmel. I think that's a great that's answer. Right. Like no, the Marx Brothers would not follow the rules. how to transcribe and... the Gimmel into your database uh, right, or into exactly. your graphics... That would be great. If you can't, then it should be five. Should be five. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, that's a good rating. This is depicting, as it were, a, a Jewish, a Jewishness in society. And totally. it's on the eve of the greatest cataclysm ever to befall human beings, right. primarily yeah. Jews. But, by, but there's no question that tens of millions of others... Germany sought to lose the war at the in order to take out more Jews. So, uh, you know, in that context, this is a very brave and very instructive multi-layered picture. Daniel, why don't you uh, close us out? You know, in in context, after hearing all that, what what would you give your numbers just so we can, uh, you know, put it for for the record? Obviously, like I said before, this is not how much I love the film, you know, because there's not enough numbers to convey that. I would probably sit kind of close to where Harry is at and, and sort of say it's more Jewish than it's not Jewish. So above two and a half stars, but it's not quite five stars. Like you said, Harry, the Fiddlers, the Yentl's, the Schindler's List. It's not quite there. There's no rabbis on screen. If we're, if we're talking strictly according to this very 
very strict rubric of like, are there prayer scenes? Are there rabbis? Is there any Hebrew spoken? Very literally, you know, from a content perspective, there's not a lot there. Now, thematically, like I said, that's where the film shines, this sort of sense of otherness. I'll probably go in at around like three and a quarter, like with uh, kind of right next to you, Harry. So that was our, our, our discussion and ratings of the film Duck Soup, uh, directed by Leo McCary. Benjamin Stewart Thompson, thank you so much for being here on Jews on Film to discuss this film and to hear so much about your, uh, your experience growing up with your grandfather, Arthur Sheikman, and your uncle Groucho. Love it. Um, I wanted to ask at this time if there's anything you'd like to plug or promote so our listeners can learn more about it. Well, you're very dear to ask. First of all, I'd like to promote the notion that we can be kind to ourselves. If we can be the Jew to ourselves, we can reframe the voice that we tell ourselves and make sure it's not a demeaning one. And in the same vein, we should try to give other people a moment to feel positive. If you're on the phone, for example, with someone at a phone bank, you know, where they're doing customer service or you're in an elevator and you can find a way to say something uplifting other than have a good day. Mm-hmm. I find that it is the most rewarding thing of all because people are so hungry for kindness. So I urge you to try to be nice to yourself. I urge you to try to be kind to others and not to be demeaning, which the, the, you, you learn from real Jewish wit. It's not demeaning wit. And I have a television show on Jewish Life Television. It's been running for 10 years called Kosher Organic Ranchero. Mm-hmm. And if you, uh, if you search Yomenu, Y-O-M-E-N-U on mm-hmm. YouTube, you'll find my channel. Love it. We'll, we'll add a link to those uh, two resources. Benjamin Stewart Thompson, thank you so much for being here. Harry, as always, thank you for being here and uh, for discussing the film. Uh, for all those listening, make sure to follow us on all the social medias. We have uh, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter. We're all, well, we're all over the, the place. Uh, so be well, be kind to each other, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Congratulations, gentlemen. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. 